0: Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them, and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. And this episode will focus on long term care and how we can better support individuals as we age. Cracks in the long term care system in Canada were visible long before the pandemic. Wait lists for facilities, reports of poor care and abuse, and scores of underpaid staff are not new issues. COVID just further amplified the failures in a system meant to support and care for the most vulnerable. In the words of Pearl Buck, American writer and recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Our society must make it right and possible for old people not to fear the young or be deserted by them, for the test of a civilization is the way that it cares for its helpless members. By this standard, we as a society are failing badly. COVID disproportionately impacted those in long-term care facilities. According to the National Institute on Aging, of the almost 1.7 million COVID cases in Canada, 5% of those were residents and staff in long-term care facilities. However, when we look at fatalities, we see a much dire picture. Out of 28,428 deaths in Canada, over 15,500 were long-term care residents and 32 were staff meaning 55% of all deaths due to COVID took place in long-term care. In the name of efficiency, the model adopted to manage those who have complex care needs is to place them in institutions, which can range in size and amenities, but that ultimately conform to some similar economies of scale. In hospitals and long-term care facilities, maximizing the ratio of staff to patients is the understood norm and nursing homes paying frontline staff barely more than minimum wage and offering little to no job security or benefits are also the accepted standard across the system. Is this acceptable? Is this even efficient by conventional measures? Countless studies have pointed to a clear answer. No. Beyond efficiency and profitability, what about our collective responsibility to care for the most vulnerable? At what point did it become okay for other factors, mostly monetary ones, to take priority over the ability for everyone to age in safety and with support, dignity, and love? The need for a different approach could not have been made more starkly clear during the pandemic. The question is, will this finally be the impetus needed for real change to happen? And if so, what will it look like and how do we get there? In this two-part episode, we will examine the overarching challenges of the long-term care system in Canada and will explore various innovative approaches aimed to provide appropriate care and good quality of life at various stages of aging. Using the National Institute of Aging's framework, we will explore the continuum of care that can help seniors stay active and independent as long as possible and that will provide quality, dignified care as more support is needed. You will hear interviews with various stakeholders involved with approaches that offer care that is attuned to individuals' needs at each stage of aging. Dr. Samir Sinha is the Director of Health Policy Research at the National Institute of Aging at Ryerson University and the Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network in Toronto. He is a sought-after expert and thought leader on the future of long-term care in Canada. Dr. Sinha discusses the system's challenges that led to the failures we have seen during the pandemic and ways forward to realize a different model for care.
1: You know, I think people didn't realize how bad the situation in long-term care was until the pandemic actually hit. But for many people who've become familiar with the long-term care system in Canada, we knew that there were deep underlying issues in it that the pandemic only just exposed to all Canadians. And the challenges really have stemmed from the fact that as Canada has created its universal healthcare system, it, it never included the provision of long term care, unlike um, other countries. And so, our Canada Health Act is kind of lopsided because it covers the provision of physician services and hospital services. But other essential parts of our healthcare system, like the long term care system or even pharmacare, just are not universal tenants. So, these are parts of the system that have been left up to the provinces and territories to figure out what they want to do. And overall, what's resulted is our long-term care system in Canada is funded at a rate of about a third less than what you'd have in other comparable what we call OECD or industrialized countries. So we spend about 30% less. We spend most of our money on warehousing older people in long-term care homes versus trying to care for them in their own homes for as long as possible. And when we underfund the system to this extent, It also means that those who are reliant on care in these homes are often doing so with few hours of care, uh, with poorly paid and poorly supported staff. And so the long-term care system becomes a revolving door where when you don't have solid staffing levels, and therefore understaffing, it just means it becomes harder to provide good, consistent, high quality care. And because, you know, this is such a small, vulnerable population, many of whom have dementia, many who cannot advocate on their own behalf, it just becomes a tragedy that just keeps being perpetuated over and over. And then Sadly, it took a pandemic to rip through so many of these homes to then expose how weak our overall long-term care system is and how much work needs to be done to improve it and make sure that it can better meet our needs as a population as we age.
0: Are you seeing significant changes being made that will dramatically improve the care that people in long-term care are receiving and that will prevent another crisis in the future?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, right now, I can't say that I'm seeing kind of a comprehensive wholesale set of changes that are being made by our federal and provincial and territorial governments, I think a lot of the changes that are being proposed or funded really are rather piecemeal and, and not necessarily interconnected. And so you have the federal government that has talked about uh, creating new national long-term care standards that I'm helping to lead the development up, which is great. Um, and their commitment to help implement those standards with with a few billion dollars. But you have a number of provinces that are saying they're not interested in having the federal government do this or have these standards imposed on them, for example this federal government that recently got left it has also said that they're going to spend uh, money on trying to enhance the wage rates that you have in long-term care homes across the country but if you look at places like Ontario for example they've been openly acknowledging that people working in these settings are not well paid and so they fundamentally have given what we call temporary uh, pandemic pay increases but they've just repeatedly renewed those increases but not necessarily made them permanent and it's leaving people scratching their heads saying after 18 months, when you just keep extending this temporary pay increase, you know, why why wouldn't we just make it permanent by this point if you're acknowledging that these folks need to be paid more? But even still, it seems like our government is still reacting in many ways as opposed to saying, how do we have a wholesale change around the way we provide long-term care? Because when when one of the members of Parliament uh, actually said, look, if if we look at what the National Institute on Aging is proposing by saying that we need to better pay uh, frontline workers... Uh, If we are going to provide at least four hours of care per day in in homes across the country, if we're going to better support people with more home and community care services, and if we're going to fundamentally uh, make sure that we're spending uh, at the average level of other countries as opposed to kind of 30% below what other countries are spending, then You know, it really would cost us about $13.4 billion a year just to make up the gaps in in the current long-term care systems that we actually have right now, uh, just to meet the current demands that exist. But right now, I haven't really seen any province uh, or territory that really has said that here's how we're fundamentally going to improve our long-term care system to be more pandemic-proof moving forward. And what we're seeing already is that as this fourth wave unfolds the country uh, we had only about 10 homes in outbreak uh, about uh, two months ago and now we have over 200 all of a sudden and so i i, I don't really sense that there are uh, major wholesale changes that are being made because a, I think people feel that it's not as politically convenient as, as it should to motivate them. And, and I think also that they're not interested in necessarily putting all this money into fixing a system that is so long neglected as well.
0: You've authored many reports in your work with the National Institute on Aging that outlines the types of strategies needed to help people age safely and with dignity and a good quality of life. What are some of the approaches and programs that are missing from our current system or that need further development and funding to support seniors and caretakers
2: well right now in canada we we point out that we spend about a third less than the average oecd country in terms of the provision of long-term care services for our population and a disproportionate amount of what we spend about 87 cents on every long-term care dollar we spend in canada goes towards institutionalizing people in more expensive long-term care homes rather than providing more care for them to be able to stay in their own homes. We note that uh, from data that's a few years old now, we had at that point over 430,000 Canadians with unmet home care needs um, and over 40,000 people on long-term care nursing home wait lists. So fundamentally, you know, when we look to other countries that we think have done a much better job, uh, one country we point to is Denmark. They spend about twice as what Canada spends of its GDP on the provision of long-term care services. And two-thirds of what they spend actually goes in towards providing uh, more high-quality home and community care. Because fundamentally, if you can support people to live in their own homes safely and for longer where they often want to be, then all of a sudden you don't have this immense pressure on family caregivers. And by taking these steps, for example, Denmark actually, uh, they were able to close thousands of hospital beds because they didn't have people just living there waiting to go into a nursing home anymore. And they were able to avoid building any new nursing home beds over two decades. Again, they were providing more home and community care, which was really what was the missing ingredient. So these are the fundamental things we need to look to be doing in Canada in a more comprehensive way and i think by taking some of these fundamental approaches we would actually be able to have a much more sustainable system because the reality is in one of the reports that we did called the future costs of long term care we know that uh, if we keep going the way we're doing with with our population continually aging as it is that within 30 years we're going to have to triple the amount of funding we're spending on our long term care system from 22 to 71 billion and We know that that's going to represent about one fifth of all of our income tax revenue by that time when you just have a plan to warehouse people as they need care in in long term care homes that are necessarily well funded. When fundamentally providing high quality long term care in people's homes can often be done for a lot less cost. Because you don't actually have to spend money on infrastructure like building homes and building beds, because most Canadians actually come with their own homes and their own beds. They just need someone to be able to help provide them the care that they might need as they age as well. So these are the fundamental things you need to look at. And for some of those people listening, saying, oh, it's okay, well, I've got children and they'll look after me. One thing that we also point out is that in about 30 years' time, we're going to have one third less available family caregivers close at hand uh, because of declining birth rates and and people living in more distant areas now. We know that because of these things, uh, we can't rely on families to pick up the slack. Uh, In fact, there is going to be just even more pressure put on government to fill fill in the gaps, and that's just when it becomes even more costly. So these are some of the things that we need to really sit down and look at. Because other countries, I think, have approached this better and more systematically. And for many of us we are hoping that this pandemic would actually motivate a wholesale change, I think a lot of us are worried that the deaths of over 15,000 people in our long-term care homes, if that doesn't motivate a wholesale change of our long-term care system, I don't really know what will.
0: What does the ideal system look like, in your opinion, that will support the growing and evolving needs of Canada's aging population and what's needed to get us there?
2: I think the the ideal system overall is one where I think that we're focused on both the preventative and responsive kind of system. Preventative one is one where we try and promote healthy aging. We find ways to help people stay more healthy and independent in their own homes for as long as possible. And so, for example, in Denmark, when you turn 75, you'll get a visit from a public health nurse, for example, um, who will kind of visit you at home, talk to you about kind of you know, how you're planning to age and, and what there might be in terms of local services and supports that you may be able to access um, so proactively so that things don't get worse. Um, and force you um, to need more care and, and other things. So it's it's about taking a preventative approach and looking at kind of ways in which we can provide more ways to support people in their own homes and communities. It's making sure that we have more home and community care services available. Because again, when we have 430,000 Canadians with unmet home care needs, it's telling us we're not providing enough support to older people and their families in order to make staying at home um, a reasonable and more cost-effective option. And then it's making sure that when we have people who do need to fundamentally go into a long-term care home to receive their care, that they're appropriately funded and and, and staffed so that people can receive the support they need. It's about looking at the entire um, continuum and, and how we can be as proactive as possible. Because fundamentally, in the end, people want to age in their own homes for as long as possible, and people want to stay as healthy and independent as they can, So why not be proactive and and give people the supports that they can access early so that they they can stay healthy and well for longer as well.
0: What advice would you give to those navigating care and support options for themselves or their loved ones now and who are planning for the future?
2: Yeah, it's tough, right? I won't say that it's it's easy right now, but I would say we know that a lot of people don't think about their futures. They don't think about the care that they may want or need. And so they don't adequately prepare or make sure that they're they're preparing for um, what that future might actually look like. And so I think these are some of the things that many people don't participate in what we call advanced care planning. Um, they don't necessarily think about the fact that, you know, if you hit 65 years of age, you're likely to live at least 20 more years ahead of you. And while the majority of those years are going to be relatively good health, not all of them will be. How do we start thinking about our futures and what we might want to aspire to? And then how do we start working with families and friends and ourselves to better prepare us you know, as we age?
0: What can we do individually and collectively to catalyze change and be part of the solution to redesigning a more humane approach to aging and to long-term care?
2: I think what gives me a lot of hope is the fact that right now our aging population is our fastest growing demographic. Uh, so right now, 18% of Canadians are 65 or better, as I like to say, um, and they're, they have an 80% voting rate as well. And we know that by 10 years from now, in 2031, about one in four Canadians will actually be 65 or better. And this is a very powerful growing group of voters. And I think increasingly now, and I've seen this over the last decade, issues around long-term care and home care are now becoming ones that we're talking about more and more during election campaigns and, and these issues. And so I think fundamentally, as people realize that healthy aging also promotes good economic productivity that when you have caregivers, that many of whom are also working, when you have caregivers that are better supported, they're more likely to stay in their jobs longer and they're more likely to remain what we call economically productive. So I think as people start realizing that all these issues are interconnected, I think this is where we're going to start fundamentally seeing governments listen to what people want. So You know, I I say to people, you know, who are interested in these issues is right now, if you can't rely on government, you know, try and try and think about what you will need and how you can take hold and prepare yourself and investigate the services and how they work so that you really understand them. So you feel that you're not trying to navigate them in a crisis, but you know what to expect and, and what you might have to bring to the table and what you can rely on from other people. But more fundamentally, you know I always tell people I want them to get involved and think about these issues and how they can more appropriately advocate for change, because the number one job of any politician is to get reelected. And if you tell them that you know in order for you to get my vote, I need you to start thinking about these issues and helping to support me better you know better age and place in the places of my choice. This is when politicians start listening to those issues, and this is why, I've been heartened over the last 10 years to see an increasing focus on a number of these issues for people uh, to really consider moving things forward over time. You know, one thing I'm really proud about is when I was asked by the provincial government back in 2012 to help develop its first senior strategy here in Ontario, you know, we really looked at all these issues that I talked about and I put out a document called Living Longer, Living Well, which was a bit of a blueprint for Ontario in terms of how to think about preparing itself, you know, comprehensively, you know, to meet the needs of an aging population. And we saw some, you know, good opportunities and initiatives created more preventative models of care, like community paramedicine programs, for example, um, or free exercise and falls prevention classes to really help people stay healthy and well and, and be more proactive in their approaches to care. But the other fundamental thing was I challenged Ontario to try and recreate what we call the Denmark Effect and and that was really by seeing a, an annual 5% increase in the home and community care budget between 2011 and 2018. What we saw fundamentally was that we were able to, by increasing our spending on home and community care in Ontario, we were able to fundamentally improve the amount of home care that was available so that more people that were what we call long-term care eligible were now able to stay in their own homes in essence, by improving our funding in the home and community care system, we were able to literally provide thirty thousand more people long term care equivalent care in their own homes. and And so it really you know was clear evidence that these things that I'm talking about, these changes that other countries have done, are also possible in Canada, and we've seen that we can actually start shifting the needle when we start focusing our energy onto it. But I think more recently, I think the you know the government in Ontario has changed um, its viewpoint and really decided to not continue that acceleration in the home and community care budget, but rather you know focus on building thirty thousand new nursing home beds and redeveloping thirty thousand that are needs of redevelopment. And that's going to come at a cost of between 12 to $16 billion alone, just by investing in infrastructure as opposed to, and that's not including even the day-to-day care costs for all these people who are going to be living in these settings. So when we know that providing care in a long-term care home is twice the cost of providing more intensive long-term care, equivalent care at home, in a person's own home, I think we need to, again, realize that we've shown that the right investments in the right place can make an enormous difference. So I'm hoping that people realize that we've actually created many of the solutions in our own backyard. The question is, we need to remind ourselves that it is possible and that this is a way that we have to kind of reconsider moving towards again, if we're going to create a fundamentally sustainable and appropriate long-term care system overall.
0: As Dr. Sinha discusses, long-term care is not covered under the Canada Health Act, or CHA for short. Money is provided by the federal government to the provinces and territories to cover costs of long-term care. However, in terms of the basic standards of coverage outlined by the CHA, it is largely left to the individual provinces and territories to determine and deliver. The result is a patchwork of services across the country and within the provinces and territories that makes accessing and receiving quality care a big challenge. The CHA was enacted in 1984 and built closely upon earlier versions of the National Insurance Program, including the Medical Care Act of 1966. In essence, the CHA is based on a plan from 55 years ago, when the population of Canada was just over 20 million people, the average age was 27 years old, and the life expectancy was 70 years old. Today, the population is over 38 million people, the average age is 41 years old, and the average life expectancy is 80 years old. One in six Canadians is now over 65 years old. The country today is bigger, older, and living longer. The Canadian healthcare system has not kept up with the pace. We have outgrown and outaged the system for caring for seniors. The next interview focuses on a solution for older adults who need minimal care. One of the goals outlined in the National Senior Strategy is to help seniors stay active, engaged citizens who can maintain their independence. A challenge as one ages is the housing options available. Seniors with grown children living elsewhere who are widowed or single may find that they are living in homes too big for their needs or that are too expensive for their budgets. Many seniors are looking for housing where they can age comfortably and safely with features like accessible bathrooms, no stairs, and minimal maintenance. Finding suitable housing that meets the right size, location, amenities, and costs can be difficult, especially in expensive housing markets. Space and money are not the only factors. Many seniors also want more social interaction and are looking for housing options where they can interact with others on a regular basis. While retirement homes exist, for many, the cost can be out of reach. These limited options have forced seniors to seek alternatives. Some are choosing co-housing. Co-housing can be defined and configured in different ways, but in general, it's housing for two or more residents who have their own individual living spaces and share common areas like kitchens, dining areas, laundry facilities, and recreation spaces. The size and scale of co-housing can range. Individual living spaces may be a room in a house, an apartment within a larger building, or even a cottage within a small community. The challenge is that there are not many co-housing options in Canada, so some people are choosing to create this kind of housing. Louise Bartswich is a retired college dean and a founder of a co-owned home in Port Perry, Ontario she and three other women chose to pull their resources together to build a shared home where they can age in comfort and in community. Louise talks about her co-owned home and why this model fits her and her housemates needs now and looking ahead. How does shared home ownership work in your model? It's really exactly what
3: it says. So we own the house together all of our names are on the deed. And other than that, the only real difference from, you know, sort of, a married couple or whatever owning a home is that we have a fairly comprehensive legal agreement that, you know, is necessary because it is a little bit unusual. The main thing that the agreement covers is how to get in and out. What would happen if somebody were to die or what happens when you want to sell those kinds of things. We each own 25%. In a co-ownership, it wouldn't have to be that way. We know of people who have done it differently, but in our case, we all had the money, so we came in 25% and it keeps it simple in terms of sort of changing ownership it's interesting because it actually happened recently one of the original owners decided to buy a place on the lake at something she's always wanted to do and she got the opportunity to do that so she ended up selling we've all been a little bit worried about selling just because it it took so long to get four people together in the first place and so a little bit of a worry that if we were selling would anybody be interested so she put some work into doing a website and working with a real estate agent and all the rest of it, never even launched the website. And she had three people approach her and say, I'll meet your price. So all it really came down to was us talking about the people who had put in offers and uh, interviewing one of them and saying this is going to work. And it, it just all went swimmingly from there. So essentially what happens is you can sell it for what you think you can get for it if you're selling and, and you know moving on on your own the same sort of thing would happen if one of us were to die. Our estate could do the same thing. So you can put the house up for sale. The one thing that's a little different compared to any ordinary sale is that the people who are remaining in the house have to approve the person who's coming in, which sort of makes sense, right? Because we're going to be living with that person. So the fail safe on that, is that if you try for a year and the remaining owners don't agree to anybody that you propose as a buyer, then it's up to the remaining owners to buy the house. And at that point, it would be a question of having it valued and then you have to pay out the person who's leaving the the 25%. And then failing that option, the entire house would go up for sale and everybody takes their money and goes on and lives their life separately. That's essentially what happens uh, in terms of turnover on it. But we were pleasantly surprised that was not necessary, and I don't think we're too worried about ever being able to sell a share in the house going forward.
0: What drew you to being involved and to become a co-owner in a shared home? For me personally, it was
3: watching my mother age. Um, She had gone into a retirement home and then, uh, you know, eventually moved on to a nursing home and so on. She really liked the retirement home. It worked really well for her. Uh, She liked the social life and so on. I knew it wasn't going to appeal to me. There were a whole lot of things that really kind of bothered me about it. The biggest one probably being lack of control. But at one point, we moved my mother from a a retirement home in Sudbury to one down here in Port Perry. And I did some research at that time. One of the questions was, show me how much the prices have gone up every year for the last five years. And it was pretty much a a 3% increase every year. Well, at that point, I was probably... 60 and or maybe a little younger even. And I was sort of doing the math and figuring out how much a, a retirement home would cost at the time that I thought I would want one, which might be, you know, 75 or, or 80, and realized that I just didn't have that kind of money. Or at least I, I wouldn't have that kind of money unless I knew I was going to die very quickly because I would have, you know, run through all of my savings. So I realized a retirement home wasn't an option for me, even if I wanted to. There are other options. I could have lived with my kids, They'd be willing to take me, but I I wouldn't do that to them. I don't think it's a great option. So Martha and I actually started looking at what are some of the other alternatives. And she was already sharing a house with her mother. So that kind of opened that door for us in terms of thinking about shared living. And we started just kind of running the numbers, doing the math, and figured out that, wow, this is a, a pretty inexpensive way to finance your own aging. And um, at the same time, it has the added benefits, of course, of solving some of the other problems, the safety issues, the social issues, um, you know, those types of things.
0: When you do look at the costs of shared home compared to if you were living alone in an apartment or another kind of uh, type of accommodation, what did the numbers look like in terms of the savings for shared housing? It, of course,
3: is going to depend on the kind of house you have and, you know, the size of it, what things you decide to pay for and all the rest of it. In our case, we're feeling pretty privileged. This is a really good sized house. It's a better house than any I've ever lived in. And the services we have here are much, much better than than what I was doing when I was living on my own. So, for example, we have the house cleaned top to bottom every single week, all of our gardening's done, the snow, all of that sort of thing. But I moved from my own house to this house, and it cost me less to live in this house than it did to run the house that I was living on my own. And I um, mean just to, to be specific, it's about 1,100 a month right now to cover all of our bills, the, uh, you know, the taxes, all the utilities, the cleaning, which is frankly probably the biggest piece, all the gardening, all of, all of that sort of thing, which is you know pretty reasonable. The other thing that happens is it's just the magic of dividing by four. Our dishwasher gave up the ghost last week and it's, well, should we replace it? Now we do have savings, we can use it. But when we look at it, you say, okay, maybe it's $1,000 for a dishwasher. That's $250 each. That's not much of a hit compared to when you're living on your own and something like that goes wrong and you have to come up with the money. From a financial point of view, it's a really nice model.
0: What were some of the key features in the physical design of your shared home that were important to you and the other co-owners?
3: We tried to anticipate uh, what we would need as we become um, physically less able. So, you know, wide doorways, wide hallways, there's an elevator. It's a it's a three story house, a basement and two other stories. So there's a good sized elevator that's big enough to take a, a wheelchair and an attendant. You know, the kitchen's big enough for all of us, although we tend to cook one at a time. We did little things like we put in two dishwashers because we tried to anticipate that things would make each other crazy and dishes in the sink would be one of them. So, you know, there's never an excuse for that. The other thing that we tried to build in was privacy. We each have a really nice size bedroom. It's not a suite, it's a bedroom, but it's a good size. Each of us has a small sitting area, really good bathrooms, roll-in showers, again, for accessibility down the way. Lots of storage in a walk-in closet for each of us, those kinds of things. And that good-sized room gives us our privacy in that it's a place to retreat to when you want to be alone. And that's important to each of us, that we want to have that quiet and alone time and option. But then the rest of the house is really just what you would expect in any kind of a family home. You know, a shared living room, shared kitchen, eating area. We also built in two guest rooms in the basement. One is sort of designed for the day that we might need living care. So it has its own ensuite and closet and all the rest of it. So somebody could theoretically be living in there and looking after us. And then the other one's more of just a guest room. And then we have this lovely big wraparound porch that allows us to entertain outside, which has been incredibly fortunate during the pandemic. And it, it's big enough that we have on occasion had four different little groups out there sort of meeting separately and having our, you know, our, our own friends over. And then quite often that just migrates into sort of one big party in one corner of the porch. It's a, a big driveway, so we can park all four cars if we need to, but we also have a garage that'll take two cars. Raised beds for the flowers so that we can do some gardening down the road, even when we're not capable of spending over to get down in the dirt.
0: Now, it sounds like an amazing space. What does a typical day look like for you know you and your three other housemates?
3: We all get up at various times. Uh, the first person up usually makes a pot of coffee, and then two or three, maybe all four of us might have our coffee and you know look at the news and talk for a while. Everybody gets their own breakfast, and then we all head off and do our own things pretty much for the day. Everybody gets their own lunch. We do come back together for supper, And while we don't tell each other sort of where we're going at any at any given time, I mean, we might, it's not like it's a secret, but we don't have any feel any obligation to tell anybody what we're doing with our day. We do let each other know if we're going to be home for supper or not. And that's just, you know, courtesy in terms of whoever's cooking is going to to, uh, need to know that. And so we'd normally share our evening meal. Might sit around for a little bit after, might not. Just might, uh, you all know, retreat to our rooms and read or watch TV or quote with friends, whatever.
0: On your website, goldengirlsportperry.ca, you share the general philosophy that guides how you and your housemates navigate shared home ownership. Can you talk a bit about this philosophy?
3: We recognized coming together that there would be irritants, much as there are in any family, for that matter. So we agreed early on that we would have open and honest communication, that we would be direct, uh, that nobody got to um, go into a snit and, and, you know, feel bad for several days. If you have an issue, you're expected to air it and try to deal with it when it's a small problem before it becomes a big one. So we do that. When we designed the home and and thought about what we were going to pay for, we did, as I said earlier, try to think of the things that would be irritants. So That's the reason that we have professional cleaners come in every week. Nobody wanted to get into that situation where you said, you know, well, she cleaned the bathroom, but she didn't do it to my standard. We just didn't want to get into that kind of mess. So we decided it was better to just hire somebody professionally and have it done. And frankly, we were pretty cool with that. It's pretty nice to have that service. Same thing with the two dishwashers. And then other than that, you know, there are things taking out the garbage and so on. Well, we do that, but we kind of all pitch in and everybody helps and whoever's around deals with it. Uh, Some of that may change as we get older, we may need more help. And we did talk right from the outset about the fact that our needs are going to change. Our plan really is to, it's not just to age in place, but it's to die in place. If everything works out well, none of us will leave here you know, until we're going out in a box, but recognizing that we know that our health will deteriorate over time we're going to have to bring caregivers in and so on we agreed from the outset that we are not each other's caregivers so if somebody is ill or you know just under the weather sure you bring them dinner or you know cup of tea or whatever but we're not giving formal care in, in any way and that's partly because we're just not interested in signing up for that and secondly you know we're all aging at the same rate so chances are It wouldn't even be physically possible if we did want to do that. So the agreement is that as you do get older and if you need extra care, then you pay for that care. You bring somebody in and uh, that person gives care within the home. Our hope is that as we reach that stage, it's possible that maybe two of us will need care at the same time, in which case, again, that's going to be a shared expense and that's going to help in terms of keeping us in the home longer.
0: What was one of the biggest obstacles to bringing this idea of co housing to fruition? Just finding four people
3: was the uh, was the biggest thing. We had lots of people that really, really thought it was a great idea, would be really interested and when it would come right down to it and, you know, put some money on the table, they would back out. The typical thing we would hear is, I really want to do it, but I just don't think I want to do it yet. I'm not ready yet. Which is pretty interesting because one of the things we all found out as we made this transition is that any move is hard. Downsizing is really hard, particularly if it's your first time doing it. One of us was downsizing for the first time in her life, and it was massive for her. It was really, really difficult. And as you get older, that's just going to get harder. I'm not sure that I could do it today, you know, frankly. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just 70, but even so, it's, it's a big change. I, I'm glad I did it five years ago and you know I felt physically able to do it I I felt kind of mentally able to make the adjustment you don't want to wait too long to do this so it was bizarre that that people kind of looked at it that way and and talked about well maybe when I'm 85 well you know what you're not going to do it when you're 85 it's just not going to happen so that was the toughest thing the second thing was actually finding the property um, and we got really lucky there we live right in downtown Port Perry Port Perry is a very small town but it's a nice little town. It's got plenty of shops. You know, we're two blocks from the bank, from the grocery store. And knowing that down the road, you know, you reach a time when you can't drive, being able to walk to things is really important. It's also uh, we're finding it's really nice to be living in an area where there's a lot going on around us. So it's much more interesting living here for me than it was when I was living in a subdivision. You know, it was it was nice and quiet, but Really, there wasn't much going on, and I think as we get older, that's going to become more and more important. It's lovely to sit out on the porch and see people walk by, and we we chat to them as they, you know, people are probably saying cross the street, avoid the old ladies, but but it's really lovely to have people stop and we'll we'll chat, and they're standing on the sidewalk, and and you know we talk about what's going on in town or where they're going, and
0: it, it's lovely. So having
3: the right location, I think, would probably be the second big issue after finding the
0: right people. You've talked about a few of the things that are, you know, really lovely aspects of of living there, but what's one of your favorite aspects of living in a shared home?
3: Um, I I really like not having the the entire burden of the house on myself. So it's nice to be able to share problems when they come up. Shortly after we moved in here, water started gushing down from the ceiling in Bev's room. When we're staring at this water coming down, we all run, we get buckets, all the rest of it, call, find somebody to come in and and take a look at it. When it was finished, when we dealt with it all, I thought, you know what? I don't think my pulse increased one bit through that entire episode. And what it was was that it was shared. So it wasn't my panic. There were four of us. We were going to deal with it. There were other people to talk to. That's really nice. The more mundane piece of that is just that if you don't want to do very much around here, boy, you don't have to, because things are looked after. You know, if you go away on holidays, you walk away and know somebody else is going to water the plants. It's a really nice way to to live. You don't need to worry about your house at all, and yet at the same time you have a home, and it feels like a home, and 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 it has all those benefits of a of a regular home. So that's that's probably one of the nicest things about it. And it is nice to hear other voices in the house. It, it really is. As you get older and you're living alone, it can get very, very quiet. It's nice to have some other voices around and to be able to talk to people when you want to, but maybe just sit in my room watch TV and know there are other people in the house. That's a, that's a pretty nice feeling, too. This gives me a lot of peace of mind in that I know I'm not leaving a mess for my kids to deal with. When I do die, this is going to be pretty simple. There's next to nothing of mine that has to come out of here. It's kind of what's in my room. I've already done the downsizing pretty much. Um, you know, I, When I lost my spouse, it took me two years to clean out the garage. Like, really, I, I, I'm not leaving that kind of a mess for anybody. So that's really nice to know that things are kind of tidied up and, uh, and that, that's comforting.
0: What advice would you give to others who are considering shared home ownership as part of their plan to age in place?
3: The sooner you do it, the better. I think actually married couples should consider it. It would be a very kind thing to do for a spouse, you know, to to get yourself set up so that you're already living in a shared environment. There's nothing that says couples couldn't do this. And then certainly when when the time comes that one of you is alone, boy, it sure would have been easier to come back to a shared house than it was to go back to a, a house where I was living alone. That would have been nice. So do it early. Pick your roommates carefully. But you don't have to be best friends. might be better if you're not. Because I think one of the things that makes it work here is that we do live fairly independently. We aren't trying to be each other's best friends. If I go out to a movie, I don't feel I have to invite everybody else in the house to go. And I think having that kind of independence is helpful. But, you know, think through what it is that's important to you. Have those discussions with your potential housemates and uh, really talk it out ahead of time try to do some scenario planning. Think about what does Christmas look like? What does the day look like? What are your expectations when you get up in the morning? You know, all of those kinds of things. A lot of, a lot of talking ahead of time before you, before you commit. And then get a good legal agreement, of course.
0: Co-housing can prove difficult due to zoning bylaws that may categorize it as a rooming house or other housing uses that are prohibited legislation put forth in 2019 called the Golden Girls Act aims to make it easier for seniors to create co-housing. The act, named after Louise and her housemates, highlights the need for more housing options and the current barriers that exist for more co-housing to be developed. Louise and her fellow co-owners created a website that provides more information about their co-ownership housing model and offers tips to others considering co-housing. You can find it at goldengirlsportperry.ca. The next interview examines an example of an innovative approach for adults with moderately complex care needs. An integral part of supporting older adults to continue living safely in their homes is ensuring that they have access to the services they need. This is particularly challenging in rural areas where care can be more limited and requires more travel. There are several initiatives that provide home care in Canada. One innovative example is the Community Paramedicine Program. These programs utilize the existing trained emergency medical personnel like paramedics in rural areas to provide primary health care for people who may have a difficult time going outside the home to see a doctor. This approach has been shown to reduce health care costs and decrease the number of emergency room visits by patients. The paramedics not only provide preventative care, but also serve as an important social connection for many seniors living alone in more isolated communities. In 2014, the Ontario Ministry of Health began investing $6 million annually to support the development of 30 community paramedicine demonstration projects across the province. At the conclusion of the demonstration period, the ministry funded 14 local health integration networks to continue the development of community paramedicine programs across every region of Ontario. J.C. Gilbert is the Deputy Chief in Charge of Operations at the County of Simcoe Paramedic Services, which includes the Community Paramedicine Program. J.C. talks about the Community Paramedicine Program's aims and its roles in the overall healthcare system. How does the Community Paramedicine Program work, and what are the services that are provided by the paramedics in this program?
4: The Community Paramedicine Program is in about its fifth year of existence in its formal matter. Uh, we've been dabbling in community paramedicine for some time before that, and we really have a, a number of arms that we include in our program. The most general arm that we, we operate through is our referral program. And this is a place where all of our frontline paramedics, when they're out doing uh, emergency calls, will always have an opportunity to refer people to other community aids. So when they're in people's homes and helping them manage their situation that we're been called for, they may notice some trip hazards or some missing community aids uh, that we can find through either, you know, 211 Ontario to help with different disability situations, family supports, certain specific crisis situations that they're working through, and long-term health care matters that can be assisted by, you know, a home care situation or something like that. So we'll make those referrals on a regular basis. uh, And we follow up with 211 Ontario to make sure that, uh, you know, our referrals are, are making their way through the system and that we're actually being able to help people. So we see a lot of improvement in the system in that way. But I think our biggest and most overt part of the program that's a little bit outside of the box from what you would expect from a paramedic service is our, our chronic disease home visit program. So that program really targets individuals with three chronic diseases, being COPD, CHF, or diabetes or any combination of. We look to help people through those diseases. We came upon those realizing that they uh, form a demographic that relies on 911 and the emergency room a lot. We did a lot of data analysis of frequent callers and came up with a cohort of people that we were seeing quite often to help them through their chronic disease management. So we we decided to participate in a, in a program that had been existing in other services and pilot programs across the province, and we've evolved into now having a fairly robust program that expands across several municipalities in Simcoe County, all rural areas, with the priority and the focus on keeping people away from the emergency room, minimizing primary care physician reliance, and really helping them cope and live more successfully through their chronic disease and helping them manage it.
0: Who is eligible to receive care through the community paramedicine program?
4: Up until recently, we were a little bit restricted by geography. We're working with a couple of family health teams that were happy to be in the program with us. They were really focused in three or four of our fairly northern municipalities. Recently, the Ministry of Long-Term Care came forward and opened up a funding envelope for paramedic services to focus on individuals that are eligible for or on the long-term care waitlist, noting that that waitlist continues to get longer and longer with people at home. And the existing services that are in existence to assist people fill the gap between when they qualify for and actually gain access to a long-term care facility. We're now in a position to be able to take those clients on. So we're working closely with our hospital partners and our colleagues at the Lynn government agencies to have those people referred to us. So as far as qualifying barriers, generally we're looking at individuals with chronic disease management However, for a certain cohort there, one part of our program looks specifically at those who are either eligible for or soon to be eligible for the long-term care waitlist as well. We don't put any sort of age limits on it. We don't try to identify anywhere that's at a certain stage in their illness. They could be coping well already and we just want to help maintain that. Or they could be having a really tough time and we want to improve that.
0: So anyone who's eligible for it or is now on a waitlist for long term care, are they able to get this type of primary care at home? Or is there also a waitlist for being able to be part of the community paramedicine program?
4: So in the county of Simcoe here, we don't have a wait list per se yet. We're we're seeing the referrals trickle through. We're a really new program. We're really spending a lot of time focusing on helping educate primary care physicians and other agencies and how we can help their system that we're not trying to duplicate service. That's really important to understand is we're not looking to replace or overtake the, the existing system that is currently supporting people. We really want to be an aid in filling the gap. We can be quite nimble. We can be quite robust and able to to identify any sort of an absence of service or a gap in the system and be agile enough to help fill that void, whether it be temporary. When you look at individuals who are waiting for placement in long-term care or longer term, when you take a look at folks that do wish to just stay at home, they aren't looking to get into long-term care. They want to stay at home. They want to age at home happily. And we can help them do that as well.
0: What does a typical day look like for a paramedic in the community paramedicine program and sort of the type of care and interaction that they have with the clients that they're seeing?
4: That's a a really great question. Our um, paramedics are used to a very responsive, very emergency-based systems. When we see people Transitioning into our community paramedicine program, it's more of a, a relaxed view. So we tend to have people that are looking to expand their their knowledge and their focus, and have a keen interest in assisting in long-term healthcare management. Versus, you know, the standard 911 one one is we're in and out of somebody's life in about an hour and a half. These are people that we're going to have an ongoing relationship with. Uh, the typical day. A community paramedical come in and they'll they'll have a schedule of visits for the day. That could be anywhere from one or two in a day to three or four in a day to go and head into people's homes. We do a number of different things for the folks. We, we do an initial general assessment of their overall health and well-being, understand how they're coping and dealing with their various ailments and illnesses. We help provide them education on how to better cope and how to, to manage things make some general observations. With reconciliation, we'll take a look. You never know when people are seeing different doctors and different specialists. There's some overlapping there. So we'll get a look at things. In cases where it's required, we do point-of-care blood work for people. And we can also respond to some of the more urgent needs for them. So if we come upon somebody who, you know, in a routine visit, we're noticing, you know, maybe they're running a bit of a fever not been feeling well we'll do some evaluation assessment we can do some short-term antibiotic prescription if that's necessary we have direct contact with their primary care physicians in most cases so we can consult there about what's best for them without having to take them out of the home so we'll go through three or four visits maybe a day there's others that we'll do phone follow-up with that may not require uh, an in-person visit we'll do some phone follow-up to check in on some folks and then we'll also be looking at intaking more people into the program. So we'll do some initial phone contact with people that have never been a part of the program and help them understand what it is and establish a first primary visit for those folks as well. So it's uh, it's a lot of things. It's not just a simple ambulance service anymore. We, we don't just take the 911 calls, respond and, and take people to hospital. With this program, we're fairly nimble in our our ability to do everything from review potential clients in documentation form right through your phone and in person. uh, Once the person's visit list is, is all wrapped up for the day, that's when they'll start reviewing their cases, ensuring that we've got appointments booked for people on a regular schedule and that we're seeing anybody that needs to see us sooner than later and making that plan for people going forward.
0: What are some of the benefits and positive outcomes for patients that have been observed through the Community Paramedicine Program?
4: The information we have shows that we have a a positive impact on people's overall well-being, and that's really important. But from a numbers perspective, we see reduced emergency calls, uh, reduced frequency into primary care for issues. So we're seeing people able to cope with their illness much better at home. For example, a case study, a, a senior female with multiple chronic diseases, including you know, pulmonary fibrosis, some hypertension, history of a stroke, some depression, anxiety, some arthritis, and a routine home visit. Paramedic would then maybe reveal that individual might be a little bit short of breath on, on exertion with an increased productive cough, making it then progress. And seeing that individual having difficulty sleeping uh, on her back because of that shortness of breath, You know, we'll have an auscultation of the chest see what that finds. In this case study, the individual was actually considering uh, a consult for maids, medical assistance in dying, feeling that their illness had progressed to a point where that was their only option. Assessment by the paramedic and a phone consultation with the primary care physician. We were able to get a prescription prescribed, leaves uh, about a a three or four days worth of medication for the individual until the pharmacy could then the full prescription. And after our three and seven day follow-up, the patient's conditions improved and has fully recovered from that exacerbation of a a respiratory illness. So on one hand, somebody's seeing there being no option, but the intervention of a community paramedic over the course of a week, we fully absolved an issue. We've kept them at home. We've not relied on the hospital emergency room-based system, made them comfortable in their home. And throughout that, some education and assistance to see this coming so it doesn't get to that point again in the future.
0: How has the program been received by paramedics participating in the community paramedicine program?
4: They want more and more every time we turn the corner. The the paramedics that we have recruited in the program tend to be our more experienced paramedics ones that have been looking for an opportunity and are able to see the gaps in the system. So they're quite engaged with helping the individuals and see the benefit of it. Every time I have a conversation with one of our CPs, they tell us about how excited they are to be working in this environment and always have a story where they've made such a positive impact on people. And it really makes them feel great giving back, helping more within their community and being in a bit of a different role than maybe what they had signed up for in the first place.
0: I wonder if you can talk more about caring for someone in their home versus a more traditional GP's visit in their office.
4: You know, with our traditional doctor's visits, uh, you're generally in and out 10, 15 minutes. We're able to to really have more lengthy conversations. average visit lasts a good 35, 45 minutes or longer. We build into our system to be able to stay as long as we need to to satisfy the needs of that individual. An initial visit or a first visit with someone can last upwards of two hours So we really do get to know them and paramedics are met at the door with smiles. Everybody is is really excited to see us when we're coming. I have to manage that sometimes. They're looking for us to come more often than we really need to. But, you know, we'll spend as much time as we need to with the client to make sure that we get through to their needs on each and every visit. And as those needs change, our focus evolves. It's not the traditional issue and response. We really get into good conversation and and spend some quality time with those individuals to make sure that they may not even be aware of an issue that's taking place. We may have to observe it and really use those skills and communication and investigation into that healthcare situation to help them realize that they do have a need that we can either help with or refer them to those that could.
0: We've seen challenges in the healthcare system for seniors, especially in long-term care, magnified during the pandemic. What's the role of the community paramedicine program in helping to resolve the systemic issues related to providing quality care and the needed supports for people as they age?
4: The pandemic gave us an opportunity to really evolve in areas where we never thought possible before. We have paramedics now holding regular clinics in homeless shelters and filling voids and gaps in the healthcare system that existed long before the pandemic, but made them very obvious to us when various municipalities and agencies put that community together in a number of hotel settings. We, We realized that there was an opportunity in working with primary care physicians to be in those spaces and help people very much deal with their issues, whether they're mental health struggles, and help them get in touch with crisis intervention or dealing with their individual medical needs, anywhere from an underlying illness that they didn't know they necessarily had or whatever it might be, we spend time in those circumstances. The pandemic also helped us realize that we could be a great help to those that are homebound that weren't able to get out to COVID-19 vaccination centers. So we've done a lot of work with our public health and hospital agencies to target and identify populations through their referral to get into people's homes and get them what they need from that pandemic response perspective. So we've been vaccinating in home. We've been uh, doing testing and swabbing in home for people on, on a number of cases for quite a while now. So looking at things that we never thought we would have been doing from, a, again, a traditional paramedic response perspective, the pandemic's really opened a lot of doors to move the the recovery of the pandemic along a lot quicker.
0: Are community paramedicine programs growing in Ontario and in other parts of Canada? We're seeing growth in
4: community paramedicine programs provincially, interprovincially, and and nationally. Internationally, um, we do have a a secretariat in Ontario that has membership of the majority of paramedic services. There's also international groups with representation from the US, from New Zealand, from the UK uh, and Europe. So not only in Canada, but around the world, community paramedicine is becoming something that uh, all healthcare systems are looking to as a, as a viable option. Here in Ontario, we've seen significant growth probably over the past five or six years. It's something that people have been in and out of services, been trying to adapt to for quite some time. Most importantly, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Long-Term Care have recognized the gap and the ability for paramedics to aid in that system and have slowly been able to earmark some funding for us. So as with any program, ministry and government funding is crucial to the growth and the promotion. We are working through a pandemic on one hand, but we're also trying to assist in provincial health care needs. And we really do recognize the, the great assistance that we've come to recently from various provincial agencies in, in funding these programs and look forward to their ongoing support.
0: Are there any barriers preventing these types of programs from becoming a standard option for people who are wanting to age in place
4: I mean I think to some degree there's always a bit of a resistance to change on on many fronts changes within the medical system that this is a little bit out of the ordinary so we're spending a lot of time educating everybody from hospital groups uh, physicians community service groups nursing groups on the benefits of the program and that we're not here to take anything away from anybody we're really here to be another tool in the healthcare system belt to assist in, in all the areas we've talked about already and, and whatever else can come up, where we see that uh, a paramedic scope can be used. Aside from the usual barriers and program expansion of lacks of funding and you know those types of things, uh, really it's awareness is probably the biggest barrier that we see every day so many different means even by being on your podcast most important get the word out and have people aware because it doesn't take a physician to do the referral we take self-referrals we'll take family referrals and we'll get in touch with the family physician we'll get in touch with the family health teams to make sure that the client is a good fit and that that we can help within the system and be a part of what that person needs Uh, so really standing on top of the, the highest mountain and shouting as loud as we can about the benefits of the program to overcome those barriers
0: what would happen to these patients if the paramedicine program wasn't filling in that gap for service?
4: I think if we were unable to continue in, in our current platform or, or look for opportunities to expand, you would see just an ongoing increase in emergency calls for non emergency issues. That's probably the biggest thing. A caseload for primary family health teams continues to rise. We know we have a, an aging population and that those numbers are going to continue to go up. Access to care is hard enough as it is. And we see ourselves as being able to improve that access to care for people. We can help that by keeping them at home. But it really is an access to care issue that we're we're trying to address. When we talk about 911 response, our emergency services can only grow so fast. We're already considered a an important part of the system. And from that emergency perspective, you gotta consider if we're going to people through a 911 response for Chronic disease management. That acute emergency may see a, a delay in response. So having an ability to address the community needs through multiple arms and not just the emergency response is crucial to keeping things moving. 911 and paramedic services is a bit of a safety net in the healthcare system. When when access to care is stifled, when people can't get to see their family physicians, illnesses progress. We end up going into an emergency room when that can be avoided. Our objective is is really to get in front of that, break the chain, and be at the front end of the system to avoid all of that in the first place.
0: What advice can you give to those looking for primary care at home and who could benefit from a community peer medicine program?
4: Do a little bit of research into what's available in your community, but your doctors and your nurse practitioners are, are going to be the ones that are going to be able to refer you into programs when they exist. Get in touch with your, your paramedic service, your local paramedic service, and see what they have to offer. Really consider being a part of the program and getting into a community paramedicine program if, if there's a need. It's really something where people need to talk about it more in order for it to become more of a, a commonality and as an option in the system.
0: Allowing people to age in place with proper supports has been shown to reduce the reliance on the healthcare system and be cost effective. Knowing this, many countries have invested more of their healthcare budgets on home and community based care. Denmark spends 36% of its long term care funding on care in designated buildings, such as nursing homes, but spends 64% on home and community based care. In contrast, Canada spends 87% of its long-term care budget on care in designated buildings and only 13% on home and community-based care. There's a huge opportunity to change the focus of our funding. This discussion continues in the second part of this episode. In part two, we'll further explore the solutions for providing care that offers choice, targets the needs of individuals, and offers seniors the ability to age with dignity and respect keep listening or bookmark part two to come back to later. Thanks for listening.